Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Knives Out, and I'm happy to be joined once again by my friend Nick Menta to talk about this one. Nick, thanks for joining me on this Thanksgiving weekend. Hey, thanks for having me again. Always, always enjoy doing this with you. Yeah, so for this holiday uh, episode, we are going to be talking about a uh, family-themed movie. So it's a pretty fun coincidence that they – and probably not a coincidence they decide to release this movie at this point. I think it's actually a pretty good one to take your family to for the holidays unless you think it's going to spur a bunch of uncomfortable political conversations. And you can talk about how the movie touches on some things like that also. But you know, Knives Out is the first movie from writer-director Ryan Johnson since he ventured into doing that little thing called Star Wars. So he decided, you know what, I want to go make a really contained murder mystery that basically has one set after doing something the scale of Star Wars, which uh, pretty cool choice. Uh, it stars Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, who is a detective that is called in anonymously, basically, to investigate the death of the patriarch of this very wealthy family named Harlan Thromby, played by Christopher Plummer, who made his uh, fortune writing mystery novels. And he has this very wa- expansive, big family that is all very excited for pro- – probably very excited for him to die so they can uh, get his inheritance. But then he is murdered, and Benoit Blanc is called into – investigate all these different people that may have uh may have their own reasons that they want him dead and it's a classical whodunit in that way but we can talk about ways in which maybe it subverts that genre or goes in other directions but that's basically it It as a loaded cast where he has uh harlan has a daughter played by jamie lee curtis uh her, her husband's name is richard played by don johnson their son played by captain america himself chris evans his name is ransom or hugh which which he makes the help call him uh these people are assholes we'll talk about that too and uh he has a daughter-in-law from his deceased son who's named Joni, who's an Instagram influencer, basically, played by Tony Collette. Her daughter is played by Catherine Langford. Her name's Meg, who you might know from 13 Reasons Why, if you watch that show. His youngest son, his name is Walt, who helped him run his publishing company. He's played by Michael Shannon, who has a wife named Donna, played by Ricky Lindholm. They have a son who is basically a, an alt-right troll. He's played by Jaden Martell. His name is Jacob. And their housekeeper, or, or excuse me, uh, Harlan's nurse is played by Anna de Armas. Her name is Marta, and she becomes a very key figure in this movie. Uh, Nick, before we get into the meat of this, do you have much of a relationship with the whodunit genre at all, or do you just like mysteries in general? Because getting ready for this podcast, I was like, huh, you know, I actually haven't seen as many movies in this genre, even if it is like kind of a known thing as I thought I had. I, I, and I even went back last night and watched Clue just because I was sitting around full of Thanksgiving food and needed something to do. And that movie was only 95 minutes. So I thought, you know, why not? But I actually wasn't really super well versed in this. Do you have any relationship with the genre or are you just kind of like someone that was interested in seeing a mystery and thought this movie looked cool? Uh, probably more the former. Uh, I was interested in what Ryan Johnson was going to do after Last Jedi, and then when you saw uh, this cast, it was like, well, obviously I'm showing up for this. Although yeah. I will state that I um, I enjoy Columbo more than I ever thought I would, and this is only something I've like discovered within the last two years. Huh. That like there's something simply delightful about Columbo, or like older shows like Colchak the Night Stalker, where you're like, I have no idea what this is, and then you turn it on, and there's something really charming about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would probably be the the extent of my knowledge of the genre, including Clue. I've obviously seen Clue, but uh, if you if you enjoy things like this, or you just uh, kind of enjoy the the role Daniel Craig was playing, I highly encourage you to go back and start watching episodes of Columbo. 
Interesting. Where, where can people do that? I didn't even. Uh, uh, daytime television. I never, I never know. It's on when I go visit my parents. Uh, there, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to, in about five minutes, we'll probably move on to talking about uh, the more spoilerly parts of this movie because it's a very hard one to just to talk around all the twists and turns that this movie takes. But I think you can more broadly kind of also discuss it too. Uh, you didn't happen to see Ready or Not earlier this year, did you? I did not, unfortunately. No, so that's not a murder mystery, but it's uh, it's kind of a rich family cooped up in a big house that had made their fortune uh, doing something like they, they did it, creating board games in that family, basically. You know, I think one of the interesting things about this movie, I, I watched Clue, and Clue is very entertaining, and some of those performances are very nutty and funny. Uh, but, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, when you think of the whodunit genre, like you said, you think of pretty old stuff. You think you, 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 there's a lot of old TV shows that focus on it. I think like the, the heyday of this kind of movie was largely took place like before, even before you get to the seventies, you know, I mean, Clue was like inspired by a board game that had become popular, probably largely because of how popular this stuff was in like the forties, fifties, sixties. And I, so when you think about this kind of stuff, I think you think of maybe something that takes place in a house, like the house in Knives Out, but it's like taking place way in the past. So I think it was just like a cool idea that Ryan Johnson had to, you know, take a premise like this, but very clearly set it in 2019 with characters that talk like they're in 2019, but also talk about those kind of issues. And how, how, what did you think of just the the setting for this movie and how effective you think it was in uh, using that setting to tell a movie that fit into this genre? Yeah, I, I texted with you just briefly about this yesterday, mm-hmm. and I mentioned to you um, that this felt like a movie that could have been made literally in any decade. Um, while there while there are some 2019 parts to it about them, you know, the son being an alt-right troll or like, you know, Tony Collette's company probably being a riff on Gwyneth Paltrow's company. Like mm-hmm. those are some 2019 details. But in terms of scale and movie making, this is something that could have been done in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. There's not even really like a large technological component to it that really um, influences the plot in any way. This seems like a movie that could have been made at any time, which is, as you mentioned off the top, obviously a pretty stark departure from Ryan Johnson's last project or even a film like Looper, which is necessarily set in the future. Right. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of the fun of it, especially, you know, I, I don't want to make this too financial, but like, I'd be curious to see how this kind of movie does at the box office, because this almost seems, and I thought I read something to the effect that this was originally, um, or at one time perhaps going to be a television series and said the scale of this um, isn't necessarily something that probably drives people to go to a movie theater in 2019. There are no special effects. Um, There's really one setting until, you know, the, the latter half of the movie. So I just thought it was, it was kind of a neat departure from a lot of things you see in the sense that it was really small scale. Um, There's no real technical wizardry to it other than, you know, kind of his shot choices and his directoral choices um, that it was just a movie that really could have been made at any time. Yeah. I mean, I I do like that point again. I I like how these characters feel like they're of this time, but at the same time, uh, at one point in this movie, an email plays a somewhat uh, crucial role, but and you see the alt right troll kid on his phone posting. I guess the joke supposed to be he's just going on to Infowars and crap like that. And the, other than that, though, like there's, it doesn't feel like the movie really strains itself to like avoid the technology. It's just like it focuses so much on like this family and their interactions and the cops talking to them that like it's out of necessity doesn't really need to focus on technology a lot. Whereas, you know, a lot of movies that, that are being true to life today are going to show just kids on their phones a lot and communicating that way, which probably isn't as entertaining to watch. So if you want to get away from that, sometimes you might feel like, wow, this, 
feels kind of ridiculous because these people would normally be, be doing all this stuff on their phone or computer. And the movie is able to just kind of like avoid feeling like it's avoiding those, th- feeling like it's avoiding those things in an unnatural way, which I thought was pretty cool. Because you know, when you have a really loaded cast like this, uh, you want to see them actually interact and not just like on their computers and stuff like that. And to your point also about like you'd like you're interested to see how it does at the box office. Like every time a movie like this comes up on this podcast, as on any other podcast this day, we talk about how we want movies like this to do well. I'm hopeful. I mean, it has a forty million dollar budget, which is in that sweet spot of movies that don't get made so much anymore. And, but we also mentioned this cast. I already listed like all of them. And I also, I think I also forgot to mention, uh, Keith Stanfield plays, uh, Lieutenant Elliot, who's the detective that's brought in, whereas Benoit Blanc's the private eye, but all of these actors are like really recognizable for the most part. So maybe that'll enough be enough to hopefully push it across the finish line. As far as like being a profitable movie, I hadn't heard the thing about the, uh, the TV series, but I had heard Ryan Johnson say on an interview I heard with him that, you know, uh, if it does well, there's potential that they would make sequels with Benoit Blanc and or something like that, and he'd do more movies like this. But he like it has to do well for someone to want to give him another forty million dollars. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like the movie's good enough on its own merits that people should see it. But maybe people will just go because Captain America's in it, and maybe that's enough. That has enough sway. I don't know. We've seen plenty of people like try and do their own things from Marvel movies that then didn't go that well. But this is actually really good material. So we'll see. It's kind of that sweet spot you talked about in terms of a $40 million budget where everything's either an indie picture or a $200 million, $250 million Marvel movie. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was – at least there was a time when I think people thought streaming services might be able to fill this void, that Netflix might be able to come in and say like, well, here's $40 million for a movie that we're not necessarily concerned about the box office so much as we're concerned about either getting more subscribers, holding on to subscribers, or building out our library – um, so this is kind of that movie that, that doesn't really get made anymore, but it's got a huge cast and, and you do have to wonder if that's enough to push it over a finish line and make its money back, especially this time of year when people should be going to the movies. At least, you know, you've got a month before star Wars, right? Yeah. You know, there's a, um, there's a movie that came out earlier this year called Netflix called the Red Sea Diving Resort that had Chris Evans. And I don't, I, I honestly just didn't even look at it on Netflix and it, it looked like it was probably a movie. that was in that range of that kind of money. And, you know, it just didn't happen for it. But I mean, I mean, hopefully Knives Out like is something that like is a little different. And like you said, if you do really well and make a lot of money and have a big name because you made one of those big budget movies, you at least get a shot like Ryan Johnson did to make a movie that was in this neighborhood budget wise. You get to pick your next project. even right. if it's so, And I'm glad yeah. he did it with this one. But, you know, it's it's got to it's got to like actually kind of succeed enough for someone to like let him do that again before he goes off and does another big payday movie and uh sees what he can do because he's i mean looper looper is another movie like that i don't remember how much money looper made but like i think people really liked it a lot i liked it a lot and uh i don't he didn't make another feature film after looper until last jedi i I don't think so it's uh you know you need uh you you need like one of these things to really break out for someone to get into the a point where they can just like do whatever they want yeah looper was 30 million dollars on a budget made 176 million so if even like if even that didn't like get him something that was like bigger than last jedi like he had five years between looper and last jedi uh i think he might have i think some and some of the bigger breaking bad episodes that he directed were all 
one of them was after Looper, but I don't even know what he did for four years before then. Like, Last Jedi obviously probably took, like, two years to make, but, like, he didn't, like, immediately get to make another movie like Looper right after Looper. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't even ask you totally yet what you thought of the movie. We already talked about it a little bit, um, and I, I really like Knives Out, and I think you might have had a, a few more critiques than I did, but as far as things that you can say before we uh, move into the non-spoiler part of the podcast, is there anything that... Or, or any other nice things you want to say. I just want to make sure people had an impression of what your thoughts were before we moved into a uh, spoiler discussion. Like, uh, I, I, again, I really like this movie. I think there are some ways in which it really, the story goes in some unexpected ways that I really respect. And I thought this is like a loaded cast and it was just very smartly done. And that's what I would tell anyone. And, uh, yeah, the movie has some social commentary, which, you know, like I joked earlier, maybe it might not be the most comfortable jumping off point if you're at a family dinner with people with different viewpoints on the world. But like it, I think it's just really fun and it sets itself apart in certain ways because it like gets pretty deep into this family and what all of these different people are like. And that is what I liked about it. Uh, was there any other big takeaways that you wanted to share as far as things you liked, things you didn't like that you can kind of discuss without giving anything away to the listeners that haven't seen it yet? No, I just thought it was really fun, um, mm-hmm. and it, it was nice not to see a movie with a million action set pieces that make you bored. I mean, this is really just a movie of a, of a lot of people talking to each other in rooms, and I, what really struck me watching it, and Daniel Craig is certainly um, the far and away lead in this category, is just how much fun everybody seemed to have making it. Mm-hmm. Like, every actor in this movie seemed like they came in ready to play some version of a caricature and they were re- all ready to chew the very ornate t- uh, scenery <laughs> in that house. Um, and, and obviously Daniel Craig blows everybody away in that category with his Southern accent. Yeah. So his... say, I said Benoit Blanc, <laughs> which sounds French or something, but like he's a Southerner. So that wasn't like off putting to you anyway. You, you got a kick out of that. Uh, it's off putting in the first five minutes when you're, mm-hmm. when you're trying to wrap your head around, okay, what is this character and what is Daniel right. Craig going for here? And then it, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly. And then you're just rolling with it, which is uh, probably the best way to, to watch this movie, just to go in and roll with everything that happens just because everybody is making kind of odd choices that, that really flesh out their characters and, and add to level of enjoyment for the movie. And, you know, if this is, kind of a heavyweight cast. So it's, it's not surprised that they would all come to this, you know, w- with a certain amount of enthusiasm to, to play off the other characters, to try to outact everybody else. And that, that was what was enjoyable to me watching everybody play off each other and try to one up each other as actors. Yeah. And I, I should add about Daniel Craig. Cause I mean, like we can, we, we can also kind of shout out any other performances we want to, but that you like, that's like the big takeaway because he's giving the biggest performance. And to me, like I, and I really like Steven Soderbergh a lot, but I didn't love Logan Lucky. Like I wanted to, which is a movie from a couple years ago. Cause you know, Ocean's Eleven is one of my five favorite movies of all time. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, he's doing another heist movie. This is going to be amazing. And I, I like parts of it, but like, I didn't like Daniel Craig in it. I felt like they were just going to be like, Hey, just be as like redneck hillbilly as you can and just go with it. And it just seems like they probably told a British actor to do that without putting a lot of thought into it. So I was a little worried when I saw he was going to be playing a guy with a Southern accent here, but kind of like what you said, like after you kind of get used to it at first, it was, I thought it was really effective because this, this guy, I mean, I'm not as well versed in like Agatha Christie stories as a lot of people. Like, I mean, I've seen murder on the Orient express and that's about it. And he's obviously, I guess, inspired a little bit by, you know, Hercule Perot, who's like the, famous investigator from a lot of her stories but i think he does get to do his own thing and i kind of bought him as someone that was like somewhat self-important pretty confident 
And despite the fact that he was very confident and self-important, I guess I was charmed by his genteel southernness and actually thought he genuinely did have Marta's best interests at heart as they are interacting throughout the movie. And I kind of like how he was able to strike that balance despite playing this big caricature. Right. And you never felt like he was actually sort of fumbling or bumbling at any point, even though he would try to give that off at times, which which is another part of the, the charming nature of the character where he always seems like – he play, I, th- I thought he struck a really interesting balance between being a step ahead of everybody else and somehow still being a step behind what was happening. Um, yeah, you can only be so bumbling when you're known for playing James Bond. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or like, you know, even I, – we're going to get into spoiler territory here soon. But, you know, even when he's in the latter half of the movie sitting in the car just like rocking out on his iPod, like he, he's clearly never like completely in control of what's happening but somehow will always figure it out anyway. So he's, he's just very casual because he's like, eh, it doesn't really I'll, – I'll figure it out eventually. Yeah. One other thing I think we can talk about is that, you know, I mentioned how it's like this whole family that's like fumbling over their father's fortune or something like that. And, you know, the, the, actually the main reason I'd even ask you about ready or not before i don't really remember why i brought it up in the previous context is that that movie is largely about like kind of spoofing the one percent and making fun of them and i thought this movie gets a lot of shots in there uh were you uh did you find any kind of uh message the movie had about class to uh be shoehorned in or distracting or did, did you think it was kind of effective how he drops in little digs and things like that where a character might just be talking about how they're a self-made man or woman and then someone else mentions the next breath that yes but you got a million dollar loan to start your business or how they like to claim that they treat the they treat their uh employees well but then they uh keep casually uh making up a new country that marta is from every time someone says where she's from uh, ecuador guatemala venezuela <laughs> brazil they, they ran the gamut throughout the movie yeah I, was, I i i quite enjoyed a, that running, latin american country yes. yeah i quite enjoyed that running joke even as they keep insisting how much they all love her and they eventually do some other things to her that uh would speak to the contrary but how did you think the movie did in and not just being a whodunit but also just like hey we're gonna make this a movie that's also kind of about the has a socioeconomic message to some extent. And don't forget they all wanted her at the funeral. So it's unclear why she uh, wasn't there. That was another, <laughs> that was hilarious too. <laughs> no, I yeah. think it was important. And I thought it was, I thought it was an appropriate part of the story and it was clearly mm-hmm. intentional. Um, I thought the shot at the end, and I guess we're, again, we're going to get into spoiler territory here pretty mm-hmm. quick. I thought the shot at the end of her standing on the patio while everybody else was down in the driveway was especially effective, especially given everything else that had been built up in the movie and not even just, you know, um, paying lip service to, to how much they like her, don't like her, whether or not they wanted it at the funeral. But even, even the role Michael Shannon plays late in the film, um, where he threatens to start blackmailing her in case the, the family gets, gets their money back is difficult or, or certainly speaks to, you know, immigration debates in the United States in, in 2019. So there, there's a lot going on there in terms of, um, criticisms against the rich, criticisms against, you know, people who are sort of not outright racist, but casually racist, or in, in, in the case of the alt-right Twitter troll son, probably outright racist. Or, or in the case of the daughter who is, uh, you know, she's supposed to be the woke one next to the alt-right son, who she even has to make some choices that you're like, oh, maybe you aren't as virtuous as you seem. So I feel right. like it gets its digs in at everyone from those kind of liberal people to the Trump voters. And I thought that it was kind of funny how like it it really touched all the bases, for lack of a better term, in, in that regard. And it was uh, pretty effective in doing so. And I guess that was my point, was that it makes it stand apart from something else like Clue, which is uh, crazy and fun in its own way. But like I still felt it felt – I still thought it felt kind of uh, distinct in that way too. And uh, what, what, and I guess the, the, a big part precipitating act, which I, I guess is not uh, – 
uh, a huge spoiler to say at this point, but you know, uh, we learned that uh, Harlan is going to give like all of his money to Marta, and that's that is what sets everyone off, I guess. They are significantly less concerned that he is dead, or whether he might have committed suicide, or whether he might have been murdered, than they are as to where the money's going. Yeah, and I what, what do you, that's what, clear. What, yeah, but what, so what, what did you think about him as a character? Him being like seemingly this like really accurate, uh, benevolent guy, but like uh, everyone else uh, just being the worst what did you think about a guy a, a guy that bad just uh spawning so many monsters i guess something probably rings true about that when someone's just, a lot the people that are given everything are just terrible and he might just be kind of disappointed in that you know i was i was just watching parks and rec again recently for like the 17th time that's a very good use and, of time i don't know what you're talking yes about. and uh uh so so the saperstein father comes back mm-hmm. uh, why can't i think of henry you? winkler henry winkler fonzie and and he, you know, that that was actually one of the things I thought of where he just goes, all my children have been a tremendous disappointment to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe this is the trappings of wealth where, you know, uh, Christopher Plummer's character, you know, clearly seems set apart from everyone else in his life and all of his children. And I think I think even at the top of the film before he, he meets his demise, he sort of speaks to the trappings of wealth and how um, – I guess in a way he was a self-made man because he he wrote these books and he amassed his fortune and then his children and grandchildren have just been leeching off of it and, you know, sort of being entitled to it for years. And I think that's where the shoe drops in this movie, where they find out that they are not entitled to their inheritance or to his wealth. That's where everything changes. And that's when, you know, given the title, the knives come out. Uh, very, very apt point right there. All right. I, I kind of just want to jump off into spoiler territory. So safe to say you recommend this movie, though? Yes. Uh, was it as it was not what I expected it to be. Um, you know, when I saw the, the reviews at 96% or whatever they are on Rotten Tomatoes, and I know the tomato meter has its flaws. I, I think I expecting something a little more mind blowing. Um, and this just ends up being a really straightforward movie. And so that's what I was surprised by, but yes, I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed all the performances and, uh, yes, it, this, this gets my seal of approval. Yeah, I, I definitely do as well. I mean, I'm going to try and put this episode up, uh, later today actually, or on Saturday. So people are still going to be hanging out with their family for Thanksgiving. I think it's a fun Thanksgiving movie and, uh, I think everyone's family is going to like it. You, I think people will like it regardless of political viewpoints, no matter how much I keep, uh, making that point that like it does, uh, have a lot of different, uh, things that it has to say in that regard i think it's it'll it's a fun thing and it's just uh, there's not a ton that's out this weekend like yes take your little kids to see frozen 2 but as far as like movies that like are not for aim specifically towards little kids like that i think this is easily like the the main thing that's worth seeing out right at the moment i haven't seen queen queen slim yet i'm gonna try and fix that in the next couple of days which hopefully that'll be really good too but this is something that everyone definitely uh needs to check out i would think so so everyone uh if you haven't seen it Definitely stop listening now because I think it's best to go in knowing as little as possible unless you don't really care about spoilers. I would go away uh, right now, and Nick and I will talk about the rest of the movie. Um, Nick, I guess I would say my uh, – give everyone two more seconds to press pause. Uh, I guess I would say like my biggest thing about this movie is that I – even for someone with not a lot of different uh, reference points for whodunits was I guess I was just caught off guard by the fact that like, oh, wow, we're going here less than halfway through the movie. The movie is going to tell you how he died, even if – and I was like, huh, that's a really cool move it's doing right now. How are we going to make a whole another hour plus about this? 
story like when they're just going to show you how the guy died from the get-go and i thought it was maybe just going to and then i and then i thought okay it's going to be like her you know like trying to marta trying to just kind of get away and get away with it and it's cool and unique that our sympathies lie with her even though it's kind of her fault and we're just going to have to watch her try and get away with this by the end and then like less than i'd say 20 minutes after that after we first see how he dies then she spills her guts to blanc and i'm like mm-hmm. huh now we're going to keep going so i guess that is kind of a staple of whodunits as unique as i as i tried to say like oh it's kind of unique when we first talked about it how they tell you who did it in the whodunit less than halfway through it is also a staple of whodunits to then have a lot of different twists and turns before the end to ultimately find the resolution, and then you have the detective spill the beans at the very in the very last scene, saying how exactly everything happened, which does kind of happen in this movie. But I guess it is just I disrespected the storytelling a lot that we find out the at least the actual actions of how the death happened so early on, and it still keeps us kind of hooked the rest of the way. And, I kind of I did, I just really respected that part of it a lot, and for something with a lot of twists, I will say the other thing that impressed me the most when you keep finding new things about about different characters throughout the movie, I thought it was just a very tight story in that he clearly pulled every thread he needed to pull and crossed all of his T's and dotted all of his I's. So there wasn't like a thing where sometimes when there's a revelation about a character in a story, you might go back and be like, huh, now that we know that, it doesn't make sense that they were doing that at that point. Or something like that, where it's like the motivations don't to- make total sense, the actions don't make total sense in light of new information. And I think everything in this movie, even if in some ways, like you said, maybe it is straightforward, I think all the characters' actions ultimately track if you go back and watch it. And I just really respected the story that Ryan Johnson conceived. Uh, what was your uh, ultimate takeaway and just the resolution itself and how effective it was in getting to that point? Well, in terms of the structure, and you know, if you're, if you're going to reveal where the dead body came from 45 minutes or an hour into the movie, the rest of it clearly has to be about something. And I thought it was sort of twofold. One was, okay, is Marta going to get away with this? Is she going to get away with a, the murder or not murder, whatever you want to call it. And then B, is she going to get away with the money? And so that's sort of like how the plot gets carried forward. Is she going to be found out? And is Mm -hmm. she going to get to keep the money? But then in the back of your mind, and you keep forgetting about it, and I thought this was kind of part of the charm of the movie and what I found effective. While you're watching those actions play out, every now and then you would remember, but who hired Daniel Craig? Who hired Benoit Blanc? And that's that actually, at the end, is the big reveal, and that's the mystery hanging over the movie. It's not... So much, how did Harlan Thromby die? Or will Marta get away with it? Will she get the money? Every now and then, still in the back of your mind, as these events are playing out, you have to remind yourself, the only thing we don't know at this juncture is who actually hired this private detective and why. I like how you do keep forgetting about it. Yeah, I like how you kind of, you do keep forgetting about it throughout the movie. I guess, again, I can't speak to how it works in a lot of different whodunits, but I just, in my head, I kept thinking in my head, like, oh, whatever, he just showed up. Like, I, it wasn't a big deal. Like, I guess the detective just shows up. You never know. But I keep remembering, well, no, the cops show up, but the private eye doesn't just show up. And it, it actually becomes like a really big, like, last sh- string that has to be pulled before the end. Yep. So that's that's what I enjoyed about the plot structure. Um, just that there was always that little thing in the back of your mind that you would forget about and then have to keep reminding yourself of that, oh, there's there's still sort of one more shoe to drop here. But also, we, we touched um, on it in the first half, and I, I kind of debated back and forth about whether or not to even go there about the 
the initial inheritance going to Marta, uh, but I just felt did, felt tired of trying to talk around it. And I don't think it's really a big spoiler to know that that's what happens initially. And yes, the movie's about is she going to get away with it with the murder? Is she going to get away with the money? But also you have this whole other component. It's like, yeah, but how's the family going to treat her now? Because right. what we've watched this family just pride themselves on, oh, look how nice we are to this one immigrant. And and you really, you, you, they really start to show their true colors when it's like they're actually confronted with like having to uh, earn something in their, for once in their lives. I thought one of, one of the most effective scenes in this movie, both in terms of making your skin, tra- uh, making your skin crawl and being dramatic and then also being devastatingly funny at the end was the interaction between um, Anna Darmus and Michael Shannon outside of her apartment in the latter half of the film, mm, where yeah. Michael Shannon, on behalf of the family, threatens to out Marta's mother as being an undocumented immigrant, uh, immigrant and then says, but, but we don't want to have to bring that up to anybody. We don't, we don't want that to ever be a problem for anybody, so let's work something out, and then the family will obviously take care of you and we will take care of your mother, and if anything were to ever come up on that front— we'd obviously be able to afford the best lawyers and we'll always take care of you. And it just makes your skin crawl and it's a <laughs> disgusting scene and it's a disgusting offer. But then Marta has the wherewithal and the presence of mind to just be like, well, let me get this straight. Even if you guys were to be the terrible people that you are and try to get my mother thrown out of the country as an act of revenge, well, I now have $60 million <laughs> or whatever, whatever she was left. Why can't I just pay for the lawyer? And the, the look that comes across Michael Shannon's face, just being like, oh, I'm not clearly as powerful or as smart or as conniving <laughs> as I thought I was. Um, I just thought it was such an effective scene. And I thought it was uh, two great pieces of acting and and just as much a, a fantastic piece of writing in that scene. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I, there's a, a, a portion of a Vulture article that got circulated earlier this week. I didn't realize, so I looked it up uh, before the podcast. It was actually from 2016. I thought it was like something that Michael Shannon had done on this press tour, but it, it was from November 17th, 2016. So 10 days after the 2016 election, I guess. And like they're interviewing, and, and Michael Shannon is like a very, very vocal critic of our president. And he said... Uh, uh, he said in this thing, uh, if, you, if you look at the young people between 18 and 25, it was up to, if it was up to them, Hillary would have been president. No offense to the seniors out there. My mom's a senior citizen. But if you're voting for Trump, it's time for the urn. And if your parents voted for, <laughs> if your, and if your parents voted for Trump, fuck them. You're an orphan now. Don't go home. Don't go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Which is just kind of funny that like he's out there giving sound bites like that when he then and then and then, and then I mean it's just acting. It's just like, I find it fun, funny and ironic that like arguably the one of the three worst people. He plays one of like the three worst people in this movie who is going to like exploit immigrants but that's actually like not the, the 180 of the views he espouses in real life but i mean it, it is really funny and what i was alluding to earlier was like you know uh the one family member that marta really confides in is the uh catherine langford character who is seemingly the most uh progressive and forward thinking of all of the family members and even she is easily coaxed into just like letting the beans spill that marta's mom is undocumented and then letting the family exploit that in the first place it's like uh, everyone in this family just like uh just like basically does a 180 and just shows like how bad they are and it's just like a funny thing you know it gets to be like this like it gets to be this whole entire critique of this family while also being a whodunit at the same time and i guess that's part of what uh impressed me the most about watching this uh what did you think about i guess one of the more uh we're talking about the family overall but i guess a key to this whole entire movie is uh chris evans performance as ransom as someone that i'm sure has seen a, a marvel movie or two in your day what did you think of uh turning captain america into like an asshole sleazebag that ends up 
Pitt is also an outcast from this family that ultimately plays a pretty pivotal role in this movie. Well, that, that's why I actually want to go back to, to what we were just talking about with Michael Shannon for a yeah. minute, because I, I have to imagine that actors just like leaning into their worst instincts. Mm-hmm. And so in Michael Shannon's case, if you know that's his political viewpoint, mm-hmm. then I'm sure he has a lot of fun playing against that yeah. as an actor, because it just gives you more to chew on. It allows you to tap into something that if you don't even believe, then you get to ape. And, you know, it's just sort of fun. And so in that same vein... I have to imagine that Chris Evans has a lot of fun doing something like this after playing the most what, wholesome decade? Marvel eight movie. Yeah. Yeah. 11 years or whatever it was of playing Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought back to Snowpiercer actually watching this. Cause I was just trying to think of uh, having seen so much of, of Chris Evans just in one role for the last decade. I'm trying yeah. to think that was like okay, the one big the last, cool departure he made. Right. When's the last time I saw Chris Evans with brown hair even? And so, you know, you had to go back to Snowpiercer and think, when's the last time I saw this guy play against the type that I've seen him play almost exclusively now for 10 years? I enjoyed the performance. Again, I thought this was, when I mentioned earlier, the film being really straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're sort of waiting for a twist at the end or you're you're waiting for something mind-blowing to happen. And in this case, it's just like, no, the guy you thought was the bad guy who was framed as the bad guy from the very start of the film is the bad guy. And there yeah. was in a one on one hand, I was kind of uh, weirdly disappointed in that, that there wasn't a twist coming here, that, that it was just Chris Evans all along because that's clearly how the film was set up. And another way I appreciate the simplicity of it. It's like, maybe this doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't have to be that mind blowing. That's not what we're going for. We're just going for, you know, the acting performances and the writing and how we're going to portray this. It's not so important that we give you a big mind blowing twist at the end. One of the things that I thought was a a potential twist, which ended up obviously not being the case, but when, uh, when the whole family is just like berating Marta and then she ends up jumping into his car, I thought, Oh, were they going to be in cahoots together all along? Like for for like a split second, I thought maybe that's where this was going, but it, but it, but it obviously wasn't that like Marta is like too wholesome and too pure and can't tell a lie, all that stuff, uh, for that to have been the case. But that was one area where I saw a twist, but I'm, I'm I'm not. It never came, right? It never came. Every time you thought this movie was going to make a left turn, it really just sort of stayed on the track. Well, I mean, like, I guess, I guess kind of, I, I, it, it did kind of keep surprising me, maybe not with like where it went with who the ultimate bad guy was, but like I was saying earlier, I, I still like some of the, even if the, the result was maybe like, I, I don't want to say predictable. Cause I guess I, part of what I liked about it is I didn't really feel like I knew where it was going. Even if it might've been one of the more obvious choices, if you're looking back, I liked how like they revealed that uh they revealed just how the how the death occurred first and then they have revealed and then and then she ends up uh and then she ends up telling blanc about it like those were cool twists that i was like oh these are interesting corners it's painted itself into like housing housing and get out of there at one point i thought maybe blanc was going to spend a good chunk of the movie actually suspecting marta like that just seems like a that that seemed like a maybe a predictable plot point for me was that all of a sudden when like she goes that they go on the car chase together and she's able to just blame it on ransom that oh he made me drive the car but i thought she was going to become a person of interest for a large chunk of the movie so it kind of uh upended my expectations in a couple smaller ways that i just really appreciated but i i don't know is there is there another it's not your job to write this movie i know but like is there like another way in which you could have seen it going or you're just saying like you were maybe thinking it might surprise you in some way and it just didn't do that the latter yeah. the latter um because i i'm with you as it was going on i'm like i i kept waiting for the left turn to come, for the swerve to come. And it just never did. And I, I think, like I said, on the one hand, I was kind of 
it made the movie in the moment at the end feel a little flat because you're like, oh, okay, well, that's just exactly where I thought this was going. And then I think once you get some distance from it and you go, well, that's just the story they were telling. And that's fine, too. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to take a left turn. And then maybe the movie is more about the commentary on whether it's the one percent or you know, the ways people interact when there's money on the line, despite whether they're already rich or not. It's, it seems like it became less about the plot in that sense and more about the performances, the writing and the commentary. And that's fine too. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I do think the plot was f- still fairly intricate though. And I, I would it, agree. And, and, and again, it, it was maybe a little traditional in the, in the way in which uh, Benoit Blanc spells it all out at the end. But I still think like a lot of thought had to go into like uh, threading all the needles that Ryan Johnson had to thread to get to that end point with the, the whole thing about the, the switching of the medicine or in, in certain way, like little things that just to make everything fit at the end. Like it's, it's just kind of a joke at the beginning about how Ransom didn't go to the funeral. And then that ends up being like a huge uh a hole to fill or a thing to fill a hole in putting together the case against him at the end like things like that or the the medicine switching uh i i don't know i read an interview with with ryan johnson just this morning a couple of them and he mentioned twice uh that he was concerned about just how to portray and explain without it becoming unnecessarily complicated the medicine switching at the end of the film um, and that was clearly like a mental hang up for him and something he was concerned about in terms of the plotting, the writing and the directing and the execution of it at the very end. I mean, um, it almost I didn't think it was too complicated. The one thing I might be maybe questioned for a second was the whole, well, the medicines had been switched and she gave him the right one anyway, just because she can innately know what the right clear liquid looks like. Like, right. I feel like that might have been a little bit of a yada yada. But other than that, like which it, it, it made was, sense. But in the end, it didn't. It also doesn't really enjoy yeah. your. It, it your doesn't enjoyment. affect your yeah. enjoyment in the film. Yeah. Anyway. No, but I. I mean, I, I. I respect that. Like that is like a tough line to walk. Just like if you're telling a movie like this and you want to have all these different uh, little details, and I'm. I kind of wish I. I'm gonna maybe try and get my family to go see it again later today or tomorrow. And I. But I. I kind of wish I had seen it again before I did this with you. But I just wanted to. I. I wanted to go ahead and get this done because you know scheduling. But I was like, I'm. I'm sure I'm gonna pick up on a bunch of new things the second time I see it. And I, but I do respect the fact that like a guy can put together something this detailed, but not let you, not leaving you feel overwhelmed or like, did any of that make sense? I, like I said earlier, I think it, I think it all does kind of click into place if you just sit back and think about it at a certain point. And uh, I think he deserves a certain amount of credit for that. Even if, I mean, I can't disagree with you that like, maybe there's a way in which it takes another wild turn or something like that. I, I still left it feeling very satisfied. I did too. And look, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for a left turn for the sake mm-hmm. of having one. It has to fit the story. And this, this is what you were kind of like, you kind of built it up in your head that it was maybe headed that way. And then it just didn't. Sure. Just, yeah. and that's the product of having seen however many movies I've seen in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. You're always sort of waiting. You're like, all right, where's this going to go? Is this, and you know, look, twists don't always work either. Sometimes you, you, there's a twist in the, you know, last third of a movie that completely throws out everything you've seen before it or calls into question or it just doesn't work for the movie. It's a twist for twist's sake. And so I actually like that this movie had the confidence to say, we're not going to do anything that really terribly surprises you at the end. It's just going to work and we're going to plot it pretty expertly and we're going to execute it and it's going to be fine. What did you think of the, uh, 104 year old great grandma playing an integral role in the part in the plot? Did you get a kick out of her? I, I did like, cause you, you've, it's, 
kind of uh, how I described forgetting about who hired Blanc throughout the majority of the film. You always kind of forgot, especially in the first half, that she was even around. And then there'd just be this hard cut to her sitting there awkwardly staring at someone. And it was it was always a source of comic relief that sort of worked for me. So I enjoyed it. And then obviously to... You think you think she's just being senile when she makes the ransom comment at first, and then that ends right. up meaning something else. Uh, not only that, but I, I've been making huge jokes like uh, for years now. I think even like off of an old WIP Joe Conklin sketch about Hugh Douglas, who <laughs> used to play for the Eagles, and just just having Hugh and you jokes. And so, well, I also did that with Hugh Jackson of the Cleveland Browns for the last few years. <laughs> so to have uh, a movie like this literally hinge on somebody, the, you know, the difference between somebody saying you or Hugh. <laughs> was I don't know if that'll work for everybody. It popped me. Um, it, it just seemed uniquely aimed at me. Um, so, like I said, I don't know if everybody else got a kick out of that. But it, it's one of those things in the you know the climax of this movie that seems sort of dumb and trivial, but actually plays a role in the plot. I mean, it's a very easy way to generate laughs. But I I, I was I was an easy enough mark on that because I laughed basically every so, time every time they showed her doing anything. Uh, what, what about the device of having Marta being unable to tell a lie without throwing up? I At first I was like, huh, this is like kind of a weird, convenient thing for them to have. But I think eventually I was kind of on board with it. Though I will say, I did call... I mean, I don't know how predictable it was supposed to be, if I was supposed to fall for it or not. But at the end, when she gets on the phone and they find out whether or not what's-her-name in the hospital is dead or not, and she says, oh, yeah, she survived, and she she says it was you, Ransom, I kind of knew that she was about to vomit 10 seconds later. I don't know if we I was, we were supposed to be able to call that, uh, but like I did see that coming from like a mile away. But what did you think overall of like having that be a, a tick of that character? Um at first, it seemed out of place with everything else in the movie, mm-hmm. um, but it actually worked on that front, like in, in terms of just – and yes, it, at the end, it, it, it plays a role in exposing Chris Evans, whereas in the first hour of the film, you're like, this just seems sort of like gratuitous for gratuity's sake. Or mm-hmm. not, not gratuity, but just it – yeah, yeah, it seems humorous for the sake of being humorous, and it's like weirdly gross-out humor. But it's a film that doesn't have that much in it, and it's funny, and you laugh at it, and it works. And I think the reason it works is because of everyone's response to it around her, whether that's Lakeith Stanfield or whether that's Daniel Craig. Like this just seems like acceptable behavior in a way that like no one actually has this tick. So I think it works more in the way that everybody plays off of the gaff, mm-hmm. not the gaff itself. Yeah, I will say it. It also just goes to like further point to how. She's just like a very pure soul amongst a bunch of people that are very much not that. And I, I really yeah. liked her performance. I mean, I, we don't have time to just sit around and talk about every single performance in this movie. I, I don't think there's a bad one, but I mean, I think hers is a pretty important one, uh, more so than most of them. And I mean, you, you, you never stop rooting for her, and but you, you never feel like she's exactly just like a damsel in distress, but she's able to like seem very capable and competent in spite of like this one hang up that she has and how nice of a person she is. She never feels overwhelmed by the situation. And I do think the, uh, anadarmist deserves some credit for that. Like, I just thought like she's in a very head over heels. Uh, she's in, almost in over her head, I guess. And, but she never actually feels that way. Like she's all of a sudden going to crack, but she's not like, uh, raising her voice a ton or going screaming, like trying to be overly plucky or anything like that. She's just like, a, it's a, it's like a very capable person navigating her way through a tough situation. And it, it's just kind of funny. Like you never forget just like how good of a person she really seems to be. Uh, and I think Daniel Craig spells that out at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the, 
you're not, it's not that you're conniving and you're, you're clearly better than all these people and you're not overmatched, but the, the reason you're going to get away with this and the reason you're going to keep this house and the reason you're going to get all this money and the reason that you actually didn't, you know, give him the wrong medicine in the first place is just because you're a good person. And he actually sort of explicitly spells that out in the film that where yeah. they say you are a good person, putting her in direct contrast to everybody else. And I, again, I go back to that scene with Michael Shannon where, um, you know, he's trying to use his power and his money and his influence to intimidate her. And she just has the presence of mind in that scene to say, well, wait a minute, if I have the money now, I have no reason to be intimidated <laughs> because I have all your power and influence and capability. Yeah. I, I, um, I didn't even think about until she said that I didn't even, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been the response I would have written for her or even thought to say if I was in her situation, right. I was like, wow, that, that's actually really smart. So yeah, the difference, it's, it's not that she's overwhelmed, um, or it's not that she's just uh, a product of, of good fortune because, you know, Christopher Plummer decided to leave her millions of dollars, <laughs> but she's, she's a capable person and she's a good person. And, and, you know, so that tick beyond just being sort of like a use of gross out humor in the first hour of the film actually says something about the character and, and works into the plot in the end. So it's effective. Um, yeah. one performance that we haven't really touched on that I did want to ask you about, I don't know if you're a big Atlanta guy. Oh yeah, I am. Yeah. So Lakeith Stanfield here, which I was really excited for. Um, this is like the most restrained Lakeith Stanfield role I've ever seen. He's also a very weird guy in real life. I don't know if you like follow him on Twitter or anything like I that. I do a little bit. He, he, like, he, like, sorry he, to bother you, he deletes is... all of his tweets like every like every like other week. Like, but he like always says some wild shit whenever he does get on Twitter. So he's just like a, he's like one of my favorite actors. Uh, like, I mean, I've been in on him since short term 12. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. That, I can't say that I have that, that was that. that was like his breakout movie in 2014 with uh had Brie Larson and he plays like a kid that's like in an at, like in an at risk use facility for um for kids that need somewhere to stay while something's going on with their parents or whatever like that he plays one of the prominent older kids in the facility so I've been like all in on him since the beginning so it was kind of interesting though as I've learned more about his public persona to then see him like go play someone so straightforward but it's probably yes. pre- it's, it is probably pretty important to have like a a straight man amongst like all these characters I don't think there's room for his his weirdness next to no. what Daniel Craig's doing mm-hmm and then his partner is also kind of very fumbling and bumbling and charming in a way. So like someone had to be the straight man in this movie. But when you when you think of Lakeith Stanfield, like, I, again, my primary experience with him is from Atlanta and the film Sorry to Bother You, which mm-hmm. you want to talk about taking left turns in a picture like oh. that is a movie that is out there. Yes. Um, but in a great way. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see him just be the straight man while literally everyone else in this film is playing some weird caricature was not what I expected and nothing wrong with it again. It was just sort of going in. I'm like, oh, well, I, I expect if, if everybody's chewing the scenery here, I expect him to be able to do it as well as anybody else. And he just happened to be the one straight figure in the film. And I'm, and I'm happy for him to do that because like, he, I mean, he's all, he's hilarious on Atlanta. Like with, without having no, and just with like his weirdness, it's like, makes me laugh harder than a lot of things out there, but it's kind of cool to like, I'm glad, I'm happy for him to like remind people that like, Hey, I'm versatile enough. I can play a regular person too. Uh, yes. and, I mean, he's been, he's been in other things the last few years where he's played regular people, but this is one of the more uh, high profile things. And I, and, and, and I think, and there's probably not much more room for that many more straight men when there's already this many characters or any more weird people. You just need someone like that to just be the normal person dropped into this weird situation and uh, benoit blanc is a uh, is in some ways more normal than a lot of the other characters but he's also like a caricature at the same time so it's yes. it's it's good to have a guy like that and i'm happy for him to like go out there and remind other people like hey i can do some regular stuff too as opposed to like 
crazy stuff like sorry to bother you or being a weirdo like he is on atlanta i'm glad i'm glad to shout him out too because uh he, he he's like been one of my favorite actors for some time now and i'm um he's gonna be he's also gonna be in uncut gems which i guess we were talking about before he came on but like he's 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 in uncut gems also along with adam sandler and the other folks that are gonna pop up in that one which i'm uh very excited to see and also like i i hate being the pushy guy that pushes recommendations on people or anything like that i've already given you a bunch of robert pattinson homework before we the the matt reeves batman podcast that's gonna happen two years from now but uh short turn 12 is like one of my five favorite movies ever so if you want to see a keith samfield like before everyone knew who he was highly recommend that anything else you want to talk about before we sign off i feel like we've largely covered this movie any any other things i forgot to ask you about or final points you want to make or details little details that you want to shout out because this movie has a lot of them uh just that uh this this seems to be like don johnson's 2019 moment between oh yeah Watchmen are you, are you, and hbo you, you watching Watchmen? i i am watching Watchmen. Okay, i'm okay. caught up and it's uh it is exactly what i wanted it to be as as a huge fan of the leftovers damon mm-hmm. lindelof's last series um i'm like well I, I obviously want to see what he does next and then uh for him to take you know an iconic uh graphic novel like Watchmen, i'm like all right i want to see where he goes with this and it's been immensely satisfying but yes to see uh to see don johnson making this uh the fall of 2019 his his pop culture moment is, is quite fun yeah i mean someone has to be like the worst person in this movie it's probably him it's uh, probably it might be him i mean, <laughs> I mean they're it's, all pretty it, bad it, but it, it might be him it's hard to say but like i i, I kind of respect that you know like i mean to to like like i mean we're already talking about how a lot of people like playing against type but to be to be like the most vile person in the movie and just embrace that and go for it is i mean you know good for him like he's uh he has to be the one that like as awful as he is and how his true politics are revealed to be even worse than what other people's are in this movie. He still is like, he still has the temerity to like do the whole immigrants. They get the job done thing. And like, think that's like a genuine like compliment in that he is coming across genuine in the moment. He has like the, he's like audacious enough and tone deaf enough to like, actually just like go there. And yeah, it's just one like, of the subtle moments in the film when that, when he was, sticking up for Marta and, and sort of playing up exactly that personality uh, and those views that you were just talking about. He casually hands her the dish when he's done with it because she's the help. Oh yeah. I think he's, he's sort of like, he's talking up like the, 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 the American dream and the immigrant experience. And then he's like, by the way, I'm done with this. It just hands it to her. And it's just, it's subtle, but it's so awful. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. He is. Uh, uh, yeah. He, he, he's pretty bad. I, I, I do like, uh, if, if I just say, give another shout out to performance, I'll I, to say, uh, Tony Collette. Like I was a little worried that like, uh, someone, I, I, when I heard people talking about the movie before I saw it, they were like calling her, um, uh, like, oh, you know, she's, she, I can't really see her playing dumb blonde. And I don't really think she plays dumb blonde. She might play like a, a, a kind of a, a tacky influencer type, but like, I do think, and she is funny in the movie, but I do, I'm glad it was more than a dumb blonde character. Cause she's like an actress that's capable of doing a character more complex than that. And I think it is, it is a little more complex than that. Even if she is kind of just like scheming and stealing money from her father-in-law to that's supposed to be for her daughter. Uh, I don't know. I thought there was a little more going on with that character than what I had been led to expect going in. So I really appreciated that as well. Um, yeah, there there were levels to it because, you know, she comes off as being completely useless, vapid and dumb. But then she at the same time, she's been bilking this seemingly smart man out of money <laughs> for a while. Yeah. So you can't you can't tell which part of this is an act, which part of this is real. So it was, it was a little more nuanced than, than maybe you would have. Are you watching, uh, are you watching the righteous gemstones? 
I am not. I'm okay, too, so, busy, too busy on Watchmen. Okay, yeah. Well, Edie Patterson is the person. Is she's in Righteous Gemstones? She plays one of the main characters in that, and she's hilarious. And she was the one that played Fran, the housekeeper, which I, um, he obviously had a bit of a important role at some point. But like, I thought, like, uh, I, I bet they could have even. I wish they had found a way to give her more to do. But it, you could say that for like any of these people. Like, it's it's probably as effective as it is because like you're left wanting wanting more of these people or just like uh, wanting to know a little bit more about them or see them a little more on screen and. That's probably the best way to do the movie anyway is to just uh, leave you wanting more of all of this. But yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I highly recommend this movie. Uh, we've already ran through so many of these actors, and if you just want to see them, like you said, like Nick said, like it's very evident they had a fun time making this movie, and I had a fun time watching it. So, uh, Nick, before we sign off, anything you want to plug at all or direct people to or recommend? We've started having people just use this segment of the podcast as like a recommendation corner. If there's, they don't want to plug themselves, they can say, hey, check this thing out that I liked recently. Well, I, obviously, I just spent the last five minutes putting over Watchmen. So, uh, yeah, that's probably the best either, thing on the air right now. So, yes, either either start it, catch up, wh- whatever you need to do. Um, highly recommended. And then also, uh, Mr. Robot coming to a close, which uh, was awkward because it went away for two years, and the, the plot can be kind of convoluted. So it was uh, a little difficult to get back into. But uh, I am very curious to see how Sam Esmail sticks the landing on Mr. Robot, which has been uh, one of the more unique shows on television in the last five six years in terms of the way that he. Um, really plays with the structure of modern television and has gotten USA to to grant him special exceptions. Uh, he's done multiple episodes where they have not it run like, a commercial in an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, I knew they'd done a couple yes. that were like one takes. I, I didn't watch I, I kind of gave up after the second season, I have to admit. It, it, it became a bit much for me. I didn't really know. What did. was, I, I didn't really know what was happening. And I'm like, I only have time for so many shows where I don't know what is happening. But I, mean, I, I, really, yes. I do really like Sam Esmail, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad he's getting ended on his terms. Season three, you know, there was like a half hour tracking shot, which was yeah. really impressive. And then just a couple of weeks ago, they they managed to do an hour completely uncut commercial free. So wow. um, one of the more unique shows on television. Yes. Plotting at times incomprehensible, but the, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he the, doesn't like the directorial too. choices and the acting certainly make up for it. Yeah. He also did Homecoming on Amazon, which was a lot of fun. Uh, he directed all of Homecoming. He didn't write that. But um, uh, yeah, Sam Essel is a talented dude. We should definitely support him. Uh, I'm not really going to plug anything else other than the second Watchmen. I, I fell behind on it at first because I was traveling for a few weekends in October, and, and I had to catch up a couple weekends ago, and I watched the first three or four in, in one sitting, which in some ways might be a little easier because if, you if you're if you not familiar with the original Watchmen comic or haven't rewatched the movie, it's, it's a lot to take in at once. But, I mean, even if you don't know anything about, like, the source material, it's still enjoyable if you just get into it. So uh, I highly recommend it as well. As usual, you can find me on Twitter. At Josh Renovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. Same thing on Letterbox and the podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod, and the podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. So if you want to give us any feedback, you can get at us there. Coming up next, we'll probably have a podcast on Frozen 2 and one on Queen and Slim, and I'm still figuring out. Uh, who's going to do one with me on Ford versus Ferrari. And I'm trying to push back doing one on the Irishman because I think people are just going to need time to watch it. And I want to watch it again. I saw it in theaters, but I want to give everyone time to have seen it before I put it out. So that might not be coming for a couple weeks, but obviously it's only three and a half hours, Josh. Yeah. You know, just, uh, spend enough time just dicking around online during the day, complaining about the Irishman and how long it is. You can just watch the Irishman. Um, but no, I was very proud of myself. I saw it in a theater and didn't have to go to the bathroom. So like, ah, so yeah, I'm, 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 my, 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 my bladder's strong, I guess. Um, but, uh, it probably took me five hours to watch the three and a half hour film at home, just in terms of like getting up, doing other things. Which oh, so is, you already saw it? 
I saw, day, I saw it on Wednesday. My first problem two minutes in was when uh, Robert De Niro's character mentions 476 out of Philadelphia in 1975. First of all, that road was not there in 1975. Oh. Second, it's 476, not 477. That would have been around in 1976, but it's like a small family-owned place that's not fancy decor. The Villa Roma they're eating at, which is supposed to be in Philadelphia, is like looks like a five-star restaurant. And that was just like one little quibble I had. But I really like the Irishman, too. And uh, we will uh, be talking about that at some point in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Nick, thanks again for joining me. Thanks uh, for having me. Looking forward to t- talking to you on the next one, whatever that might be. Everyone else, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for all the other stuff I just talked about that's coming up, and we'll see you next time.